God, thank you for the worship that we've had that hopefully in a very real way have focused our minds and softened our hearts to what we're about to study. And God, you know in this church we uh, take your word very seriously. We believe that in history you've revealed yourself propositionally to us through the Bible and that is very meaningful to us. We'd be lost in our knowledge of you and in our application of our faith without that. And so God, I pray that as we uh, tackle some tough passages today, just help us understand them rightly, help us to apply them uh, honestly and aggressively to our lives, so that as we've sung about, you might have the honor and you might have the glory. And it's in your Son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Well, as I hinted to in my uh, prayer there, I want to talk with you today about one of the most difficult and contentious New Testament principles there is for followers of Jesus. It's a principle that most Christians don't like, mind you. As we'll see, it's a principle that goes against the grain of both our fallen nature as well as our culture today. It's a principle that's created a lot of confusion over the years. And because of this, most Christians don't really look much deeply into this principle. And hence, they're kind of ignorant about what it really contains. It's a principle that you don't hear very often in sermons. Bible studies usually avoid it. TV preachers never talk about it. And there aren't too many books on it. And yet it's a principle, a command, really, found multiple times in the New Testament, like over a dozen times. And it's one that God has given to us because He finds it very life-giving for us as well as a significant part of His plan for us. And so imagine that. God telling us what He wants us to do, us not liking it and not wanting to do it, but Him knowing better in the end. And so what is this difficult and contentious New Testament principle? Well, here it is. Look up on the screen. It's our main point today, and it's simply this, that we submit to God in part by submitting to God-ordained earthly authorities. And now you understand why you don't like it, right? And if you think I'm saying it candidly, look at how Peter goes on to say it in this book that we've been studying this summer and now into the fall here at Scottsdale Bible. Look at 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 15. We've got to make sense of this stuff, folks. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Focus for just a moment there that two phrases in verse 13 that I've highlighted for you. The phrases, be subject, and then every human institution. Wow! We're going to look more closely in just a minute at that phrase, be subject. But just suffice it to say for now that it means what you think it means. The New International Version and the New American Standard Bible translate this phrase, be subject, as submit. That might be a better thing for us to understand. Submit. The idea of putting yourself under another and doing what he or she says. That's what it means. To be subject. And then as if this were not enough, it then goes on to say to every human institution. Or as the NIV says, to every authority instituted among men. What it's simply getting at is that wherever you have a bona fide, human-based, earthly institution set up by people, and one that you happen to fall within, make sure that you fall in line and play your role within it. In other words, don't shake your head and shake your fist or turn your nose at, at the fallen and imperfect authority structures in your world. Don't cop an attitude of rebellion. Don't say to yourself, well, it's just about as human beings and they don't know what they're talking about, so I think I'll follow God instead. No, Peter's saying, don't become like a Christian version of Howard Stern, but submit. 
Subject yourself to every human institution. And I know how some of us think. Well, we tempted to think at this point, well, but what he really means, Jamie, is as long as they're good and godly institutions, right? I mean, as long as they're fitting and proper authority structures, I'll fall in line. But if they don't go do a good job, then there's no way that God would want me to submit, right? Well, think again. First, as if anticipating this kind of thinking, Peter goes on to mention a couple of tough nut, human-based kind of examples, the authority that he's talking about in the text here. I mean, look at verse 13. He says there, the emperor as supreme. The emperor supreme. I mean, that had to shake his original audience. Because we know that the emperor back then was this guy by the name of Nero, who was a megalomaniac that makes most rulers look mild. And he was a guy that hated Christians. And so for them to hear that, to submit to him, they had to be thinking, what? Submit to Nero? And then, as if that were not enough, look at verse 14. He goes on to say, and then even, where am I at here? He goes on to say, even those, the governors, that are sent by him. Which we know included people like Pontius Pilate. Remember him? The one who put Jesus on the cross. The one who allowed the Jews to condemn Jesus and, and condoned that. I mean, you get the picture here. These aren't just nice, prim and proper, Christian-friendly, human-based institutions that Peter's talking about. But everyone, friendly or not, is included here in God's call and command to submit. And folks, what comes, becomes even more surprising is that when you then look at the rest of the New Testament, particularly what specific authority structures that God is talking about, you really start to scratch your head. And you go, what? I mean, using this same word that Peter uses, we are called in the New Testament to submit to government leaders in Romans 13. We're called to submit to church leaders in Hebrews 13, but we don't have a problem with that. We're called as young men to submit to our elders, family or not, in 1 Peter chapter 5. Servants are called to submit to masters in Titus 2. Wives are called to submit to husbands in Ephesians 5. The church is called to submit to Christ. I mean, like there's submission everywhere. When you look closely at the New Testament, the Word itself appears some 50 times in the New Testament. And when you finally start to get what the authors are saying here, you've got to ask yourself, what is this about? I mean, why is God so concerned about submission? And how is this supposed to work? Especially when you consider that some of the authority structures that God commands us to be under are like no fun at all and even brutal, like bad governmental structures or a system like slavery. And speaking of that, we then ask, well, are there any outs, God? I mean, please tell me that there's some like big caveats here that might help us wiggle out of it when things get too rough. I mean, this is a tough thing that the Scriptures tell us here. To submit. You can see why not too many people are writing books about this subject, right? Three things. Three things that the text goes on to tell us here that I want us to get our, our heads and hearts around that I think are going to help us understand this idea of submission. Three things that will start us off on a clear and sobering understanding of what it means for God's people to submit. And the first thing that I want to share with you here is going to kind of shock you a little bit here too, but we need to start off by fully understanding what God is saying here. Look up here on the screen, and it's simply this. And that is that submit means submit, or subject means subject, and there is no way around it. That's the first thing we need to understand if we're ever going to get life out of this command that God has given us. And that is that submit means what you think it means. It means submit, and there's no way around it. 
And the reason that this is important to note is because there have been some well-meaning Christians down through the ages and even some expert Bible commentators today. I read one just this week that in trying to kind of take the edge off this idea of submit, they end up redefining the word and watering it down so that it becomes more palatable to us. In other words, they try to say, well, this doesn't really mean submit like we think of it today, like some place yourself under another person's authority kind of thing. No, what it's really getting at is really just a sense of deference or respect. You know, kind of like honoring the other person. Kind of like telling them to bog off and not doing what they want you to do, but doing it in kind of a nice way. That's kind of what they say this word means in trying to help us understand this principle. The only problem with this kind of thinking is that it almost does no justice at all to what Jesus, Paul, Peter, and James all mean by this word. As I mentioned earlier, this word that we translate submit or subject is used like 50 times in the New Testament, which is a lot. And we know a lot about this word. And as we saw, it's used in numerous scenarios to talk about our subordinating relationships that we have with all kinds of people around us. Governments, societal institutions, family, church. And what you need to know, folks, is that at core, it means what you probably think it means. I mean, it literally means to cause to be in a submissive relationship, to be subject to, to subordinate. It carries with it a sense of somebody having authority over you in certain areas, and you keep yourself under that authority. You don't try to wiggle out, and you respond how that authority expects you to respond, whether you like it or not. That's really what this word means. And we have to start there. We have to honor what God is telling us in His Word. Probably one of the most benign examples that I can point you out in the Scriptures is an example that almost all of us don't have a problem with, and that is when it tells us that children should be submissive to their parents. How many of you have a problem with that one? Well, the kids here might, but most of us as adults and grandparents say a hearty amen to that one, right? So in Luke 2, verse 51, it tells us that Jesus was submissive, same Greek word that Peter uses here in 1 Peter 2, to His parents. Let that sink in a moment. The Son of God, eternally existing before all time, now inhabiting a human body when He was on this earth, was submissive to His parents. He listened to them. He obeyed them. He did what they said. He didn't give them a hard time about it. And though there were a couple of odd scenarios where He broke stride in this, and we'll get to what that principle is about in just a minute, what you can't escape is the fact that Jesus Himself models for us what submission looks like by regularly listening to and obeying His parents, right? Like He shows us very clearly what this word submission means. And it's not some deference or just honor. It's being under authority and doing what someone else tells us to do. And the only problem is, is as much as we agree with this when it comes to the family structure with parents and kids, that when we then hear that we likewise now as adults need to practice similar submission in places like governmental institutions, family structures, societal settings, and church relationships, we begin to squirm in our seats, don't we? We kind of try like crazy to redefine it or explain it away or ignore it. And yet, please hear, folks, as far as God's Word lays out, there's no room to do this. The first thing that we need to recognize, if we're ever going to honor God, and find life in this command that He asked for us here, and we can, 
is to realize that He has indeed called us to live and function submittedly in many of the human-based earthly institutions that exist, even the ones that are unfair and make our lives seemingly not fun and even miserable. Submit means submit, and there's no way around it. Now, if you have put up with this so far in the message this morning and not daydreamed too much, I want to encourage you that the hard stuff is now behind us, all right? It's behind us. In other words, I, I started off on a, on a bang to get the hard stuff done first. And then from this point on, I'm telling you, it's going to be some wonderful smooth sailing for the rest of our time here this morning, okay? And so let's move on now once we understand what submit means. And, and, and let's now explore God's reason for such a difficult command. And so here is point two, and this is going to help. And that is that our earthly submission, did you know this, is a significant part of our witness for Christ. It's true. Our earthly submission is a significant part of our witness for Christ. And so check this out, folks. As far as I can tell, there are two primary reasons that God calls us to submit in the way He does. Look up here on the screen. The first reason is that our submission honors earthly order and promotes civility. In other words, God asks us to submit Because it helps keep things orderly on this earth. Without it, it'd be chaotic. And it promotes civil relationships among us. Peter hints to this in our passage here this morning. But there's a corollary passage that most anybody who's studied this issue knows about. Paul almost wrote very similar words in Romans chapter 13. But he gets more to the core of God's reason for this, at least reason A here. And I want to read it for you right now. I don't want you to turn there unless you really have to. So like you super high control people, Romans 13 verses 1 through 7, you can go there right now. I would be if I were you because I'm a high control person. But for the rest of you, I would call you just to to just listen to these words. I'm not even going to put them up on the screen. Just listen to what Paul's rationale is, God's rationale by extension, for this idea of submission. See if you can pick up on this. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Paid all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So don't miss what the Bible's telling us here, folks. Namely, that even within secular and fallen, earthbound institutions, there's got to be order. And so God tells us that He is sovereignly in control, that He's even placed certain people there, and that our submission plays a role in His sovereign plan. And we must trust Him in this, He says, that even in bad and oppressive human-based authority structures, that God is up to something creating order and has a purpose. And so he's saying, submit and trust me, he says, in the process. And though this is obviously hard to take when the government is totalitarian 
or abusively monarchical as many people in other parts of the world have to deal with. And we'll get to how they might deal with this in just a minute under point three. But, but quite frankly, when you think about it, folks, for us here in America, this principle actually isn't too hard to see how God might use this for our good. Think about it right now. Um, for us in America, what kind of government do we have here? We have what might be called a democratic republic, right? A democratic republic. Where, where half the time we have maybe a direct say on everything, okay? When we vote on certain issues and the majority wins and all that. And then the other time we vote in legislature, le- legislators who then will represent us, and that's the republic part, in governmental places, right? And, and so we know that our country is founded on a, on a great amount of freedom. And, and so in applying First Peter 2... And Romans 13, when it says that we need to obey our leaders, what's the number one thing that our leaders tell us to do like almost all the time in a democratic republic? Well, it's to voice our voice, right? It's to vote. It's to participate. In other words, the number one thing that we hear all the time, among other things, in our political culture is just don't be a sideline person participate, vote, so that the majority, the will of the people might happen. That's been the whole history of our nation. And so now think about it, about what would happen then if God's people, if Christians, and there's like a lot of them in our country, were to all participate, obeying 1 Peter 2, obeying Romans 13 in our democratic republic, and voice our voice and vote as God's word directs us. Do you see how God might use that? to make things better and keep order and civility, especially in a country like ours, I think we kind of got a win-win on our hands. I want to give you an example of how this works here in a minute. Don't give me a click yet, guys, Um, because I want to set this up by just making something very clear. I'm going to give you an example of this from the upcoming political election, okay? Now, some of you are starting to always think, what is he going to do? Trust me. Trust me. And what I am going to do is I'm going to talk to you about a moral issue that's going to be coming up in the upcoming election. Now, you guys know I don't talk about political issues like hardly ever at all. I'm a pastor and I do what I do well. But do we all understand that when politics infringes upon our faith and starts to legislate a clear biblical moral issue, then we have a right to give our opinion on that, especially in our country? Do we all understand that? Give me a head nod. And so, yeah, amen. And so here's what I don't want. I don't want some of you emailing me this week saying, why did you talk about a political issue from the pulpit? Because I'm not talking about a political issue. I'm talking about a moral issue that they've stolen and now want to make a political issue, okay? And we as Christians should talk about those things. And if we don't, we're really not honoring what God has said in His Word, okay? So here's the deal. Um, As many of you know, or some of you know, this November, we're going to be asked in the state of Arizona to vote on a constitutional amendment for marriage. We are. We did it two years ago and it didn't pass. First time out of 20 some odd states that have this amendment in which it didn't pass. And they made it much simpler this time. Look up here on the screen. It's called Proposition 102. And this is what you're going to be voting on in November. And that is you're going to be voting on this statement. A union, only a union, of one man and one woman shall be valid or recognized as a marriage in this state. Can't get much more simpler than that, right? And what I love about this statement, because last time around they made it a much more complicated statement, is that this isn't against anything. This is not against same-sex people. This is not saying that there's no rights for same-sex people. I mean, it's not trying to take away any rights. It's simply trying to say, here is how we define marriage. Here is how we want to protect 
marriage from this point on in our state. And I believe not only is it very fair, but it is so in line with God's Word. I mean, if you know anything about the Bible, you go all the way back to Genesis 2, and God clearly has said what marriage is. And this statement capsulizes that. And so here's the cool thing, is that come this November, if we honor what God has said in 1 Peter 2, if we honor what He has said in Romans chapter 13, and we participate in our democratic republic, there's a good chance that God can do some good in and through our political system. Do you see how that works? And this is why God ordained it this way, to set it up so that good things can happen, civility and order can come when Christians submit. And I'm telling you, compared to other cultures in our, country, in our world today, we got it made for the most part when it comes to these things, if we but participate. The first reason, folks, that God calls us to submit is for order, to keep civility, and we need to see that. Now, as I said, there's two reasons, and this is only one side of the coin, but there's another, and I would say even more important reason, that God wants us to live lives of submission that covers every base when it comes to submission. And so going back to our text in 1 Peter 2, here's the second reason we submit, and that is that our submission, no matter what kind of culture you're in, good or bad, reveals our humility and Christ-like heart of servanthood. Now we're getting somewhere. Our submission reveals our Christ-like heart of servanthood and humility. Look at how Peter goes on to say it in verses 15 to 16. He says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people living as servants of God. Don't miss this, folks. What God is saying is that when we live lives of submission, even under dire and difficult circumstances, this shows what Christians are made of. Namely, as humble servants of Him that we're following that are a part of a much bigger kingdom that transcends the paltry machinations of this world. I mean, please see this. He's saying that by submitting in whatever societal, political, church-based, or family-oriented setting God has placed you in, whether it's going really well or whether it's terribly awful, He wants us to demonstrate what humility and servanthood are about, what the values of the kingdom are about. And He also wants us to communicate through our submission that the many things of this world are not even to be compared with what God's kingdom about is about, and our submission highlights and puts in italics and bold the values of the kingdom so that people would look at us and say, whoa, so that's what Christ is like. Humble in nature, serving in nature, meek, mild, turning the other cheek. Those are the values of the kingdom that when we submit become highlighted. And quite frankly, the worst situation we're in, as we'll see, the more they can become highlighted. And God is in that. And in doing this, he says, it has the power and the capacity to to literally silence the ignorance and foolishness of those who are mired in earthbound authority structures, human-based ones. They look at that and they go, whoa, what's that about? I mean, this is precisely what Peter is getting at when he uses the example of servants submitting to masters, which is like a brutal system, back in, or in the verses 18 to 25 there of our text. And then he ties it to the example of Christ. Now, we don't have time to read it here this morning. Read it later, please. But notice the link that Peter makes between submission and good conduct of those trapped in first century non-voluntary servanthood when he then links it with the character and actions of Jesus himself. 
He says that, that just as they suffer, Christ suffered. That as they don't revile, Christ didn't revile. As they trust themselves to God and His justice, Christ trusted Himself to God and His justice. I mean, talk about identifying with Jesus. Submission allows us to do just that and thus both demonstrates what followers of Almighty God are made of as well as draws us close to Him in the process. Truly, our earthly submission is a significant part of our witness for and even our walk with Christ. God uses it to deepen us and to show an onlooking world what we're made of and the God that we follow. Uh, Joe said earlier that I was going to tell you a story, and, and he was right, about uh, when I first learned this lesson as a very early Christian. The time that I was going through a very difficult situation, I, I really didn't think how God would use it. I later on realized, like some of you have in circumstances that you have been in, how much the Lord was in that and, and that he was absolutely up to something that forever has made me the man that he's made me to be today. It happened during my freshman year of college. I was just coming out of my freshman year of college and I was back in my hometown of Chagrin getting a summer job. And if you remember, many of you remember, I became a, a Christian early on in my freshman year and I was just on fire in my walk with God. And I landed a job at a True Value hardware store two towns away from the little town that I was living in there. It was a very large hardware store and I was going to be one of the stock boys now, if you guys have ever worked at a hardware store, know that Stock Boys is kind of like lowest on the ladder, right? We unloaded trucks, we mopped floors, we stocked shelves, and we'd carry these huge 80-pound salt bags and 100-pound cement bags out for customers and put them in their pickup trucks or sedan or whatever car they were driving. And this was my summer job that I'd gotten through a friend of mine's father. And this store was owned by three men, all from the same extended family. Two of them were on site as managers, and one was a silent partner. And one of the guys was always busy on the floor, stern but fair, and the other guy would man the gun counter. And this is Geauga County, mind you, so sell lots of guns there. And he's manning the gun counter, and the name, his name was Nick, and he was effectively my boss. And all I can tell you is that from day one, Nick did not like me. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was a Christian, and I was pretty on fire in my walk with God. He was not a religious person at all, and he didn't have much room for people who were religious. He saw that as a very weak thing, and he did not like me at all. And that summer, he saw me as a target for his aggression. I'll never forget when I first realized this, I was unloading some trucks with a couple of other stock boys, and for like the fourth time in a row, I noticed that this driver was looking at me kind of funny, smoking a cigarette, shaking his head. So I said to their stock boys, you know, every time I'm loading this truck, this driver's looking at me kind of weird. What's going on there? These two guys looked at each other and they said, you don't know? And I said, no. And he goes, well, Nick has been telling all the truck drivers that you, when you come in that you're a flaming homosexual. And he said, and these guys, you know, aren't real amenable to that. And so, you know, they're kind of looking at you weird and, and making fun of you. I said, you got to be kidding me. I immediately walked up to Nick's gun counter. And I said, you know, Nick, you, you don't to be doing stuff like that. I said, not only is it not true, but even if it was, that, just, that is not a kind thing to do at all. In fact, that's downright abusive. He looked me in the eye and he said, you got a problem with that, gamey? And for the rest of the summer, all he would call me is gamey, not Jamie. Every time he'd get on the PA system for assault order, it would be gamey. Every time he would see me, it would be gamey. That became my nickname from my boss all summer. One day over the PA system, he said, gamey, the men's room is dirty. You need to go clean it. I walked into the men's room. I, I could not believe what an absolute mess that it was. And I know I had just cleaned it the day before. So I walked up to Nick's counter. I said, Nick, that thing's an absolute mess. Do you know what happened? He just smiled at me, and I learned that he had gone in and intentionally completely trashed the men's room just so I would have to clean it. He would do things like that all summer. 
He'd put notes on my pickup truck on the way back of it that would just be insulting types of things that I wouldn't see till I got 10 miles home to my home. I mean, on it went all summer. The, the significant verbal berating, the unfair workload, the character assassination, even violating my private property. Quite frankly, folks, things that today could easily be made into a lawsuit, but think about it. Back in rural Geauga County in the early 80s, this was not something that anybody ever took legal action on. And as the summer wore on, I thought of things that I could do. I thought I could quit, but I needed the money. I thought I could complain to the silent partner. He was kind of a man in authority there too who helped get me the job, but I just didn't feel right to bring him into it. I even thought, you know, I could fight back, demand my rights. I could say to Nick, you know what, I'm not, I'm not putting up with this stuff anymore, but I thought that could either work really well or that could backfire on me, right? Some of us have been in situations like that. But you've got to remember, I was a brand new Christian. And so I was reading the Bible for what it says. And I can remember reading the Bible and reading about guys that are in like ten times worse situations than I were and were submitting and having a witness for Christ. You read your Bible? And I remember reading about these people and going, well, gosh, if they can do it, then certainly I could do it. And so I committed myself halfway through that summer that I was going to put up with this crud and I was going to continue to walk with God, and I was going to love Nick, and I was going to share my faith with him as I work hard and put up with it. I mean, I didn't know any better. And I even learned to smile at Nick about halfway through the summer. I'd get all prayed up as I was heading to work, and, and I'd be walking by his gun counter, and he'd say, hi, gamey. And I remember the first day I stopped, and I looked at him, and I said, guess what, Nick? God loves you. Did you know that? And I said, and I'm going to love you too. And I said, Jesus Christ died for you to forgive you of that nasty sin that's so obvious in your life. And I said, and I just want you to know that I am going to love you as this summer goes on. And I walked away. Let me ask you, do you think that made him do it even more or do it less? I mean, it became a tit for tat. And the heat turned up with him and the heat turned up with me. And I thought, I'm not going to back down in this. I'm going to submit. I'm going to be the kind of Christian God has called me to be. And let me tell you what happened at the end of the summer. Nick didn't change. I don't think he's ever changed to this day. But there's a large staff at this hardware store still to this day. You've got about six registers lined up. It's a, one of the largest ones in Geauga County there. And all the, I didn't know, but all the um, cashier ladies were, were watching this all summer long. And at the end of the summer, they pulled me aside and they, they gave me a gift. And as I unwrapped the gift, it was a plaque. And on the plaque were just three words and then one word of who the author was of those three words. And the three words said this, Love your enemies, Jesus. Love your enemies, Jesus. And it hit me at that moment. They were watching this. And they got it. That there was a witness in this. And then as I look back, I thought of all the conversations that I had with other workers there when they'd ask questions and go, why, why are you doing this? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you responding like this? And why are you loving him and not demanding your rights and all this stuff? And, and I realized as I look back that only heaven is going to show the kind of fruit that a summer like that bore. And I learned a great lesson that summer that I think Peter is communicating to us here. Namely, that God truly does desire to use our lives as a witness for His truth. And His truth is all about the, the love of Jesus Christ and God's call for people to trust in Him wholeheartedly and in obedience through Christ. And when you and I submit, even through at times unfair and annoying human-based authority structures, God has a chance at that precise moment to highlight what true faith, what true Christ-like love and humility are all about. And I'd even argue, as I think Peter is, that sometimes He can highlight it even more, right? Right? 
You ever bought a diamond? When you buy a diamond, do they put it on a white felt or black felt? They put it on black felt, right? Because on black, diamonds show up more. Could it be that in our lives, the light of Christ shines up more in the darkest places? Amen? And that the reason He calls us to submit, even in troubled circumstances, is because God knows He can get something out of it. That He can make His kingdom shine into our lives and maybe affect more people for the kingdom. Don't miss this. Our earthly submission is a significant part of our witness for Christ. He has a purpose in it. And that is to maintain order in a fallen world and then also reveal what humility and servanthood look like. He's not commanding us something silly. He's commanding what He knows is best for us and for this world. Now, we're fast running out of time. And yet there's one more very important thing that we need to at least mention if we're ever going to make sense of this submission thing. And this third truth very much helps us pull all of this together. And if I don't miss my guess, it's going to answer a question that many of you have had in the back of your minds up to this point as you've been processing. Because again, I, I know how you think as you think like me. All week when I was studying this, I'm going, but, 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 right? Like you're thinking of all the different scenarios where this doesn't really fit. And so let's explore that for a minute. Look up here on the screen. This is the third thing we need to walk away with, and that is that our earthly submission should never lead us to do something sinful. Our earthly submission never leads us to do something sinful. In other words, listen close, there is a limit to God's call for us to submit to earthly authorities, especially unfair and downright abusive earthly authorities. And that limit is simply when we are asked or commanded to do something that would go against what God has already asked us to do or to do something that God has clearly forbidden us to do. In other words, to do something sinful. Theologians for years have called this the difference between God's law and man's law. And simply put, whenever man's law goes against God's law, God's law, it would be sinful not to choose God's law. And what you need to know is that there is incredible scriptural evidence for this kind of thinking. I mean, quite frankly, it's everywhere. Uh, just three examples here. I'm going to put the scriptures up on the screen just referencing where they are. You can look them up later for those of you who are note takers here. Uh, but in Acts chapter 4, it's fascinating. Peter, who wrote the words we're studying here today, and John are arrested. And they're arrested by one of the ruling councils of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. And they're hauled in before the court of the Sanhedrin. And they're told specifically not to preach the gospel of Jesus anymore. You're being seditionous. You're creating havoc in our culture. So then they, Peter and John leave. And what do you think the first thing is that they did? They preached the gospel. They didn't listen to them. And then in chapter 5, they're hauled back in again. And they said, hey, you didn't obey us. You didn't listen to us. You didn't submit. And Peter and John look at them and they say... God's law is higher than man's law. We have to follow God before we follow you. And then in Daniel chapter 3, there's another example where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were three of Daniel's friends, I remember their names by remembering your shack, my shack, and a bungalow. Can you remember that? <laughs> so your shack, my shack, and a bungalow, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, isn't a seminary education wonderful? 60 grand to learn that. Anyways... Uh, they, they, if you remember, they were asked by Nebuchadnezzar to bow to the golden image. And they said, we can't bow. That'd break the first commandment. Like, you don't bow to anybody but God. And so Nebuchadnezzar said, if you don't bow, I'm going to put you in the fiery furnace. And we know they went in the fiery furnace and God delivered them. But they didn't bow. Why? God's law is higher than man's law. Then in Hebrews 11, verse 23, we see Moses is being talked about where his parents hid him when Pharaoh said that all newborn babies need to be killed. 
And again, they're going, newborn babies killed, honor God who said don't murder. I think I'm going to honor God. And they hid Moses. And aren't we glad that they did? And you can find myriads of examples in the New Testament of this kind of thinking. You get the point. That yes, we're to submit, and in so doing, God will use it to keep order and highlight humility and servanthood. But this is certainly, please hear this, not a blank check for Christians to have to do everything that fallen and sinful earthbound leaders tell us to do. Not at all. For we are not to ever do something that would go against the clear mandates of God and His Word. That would be sinful. And when push comes to shove, when we're called to either follow God or follow man, we must always choose God and His ways. Let me just give you one caveat, however, to this, because I've seen Christians really abuse this principle in the past. And that is, I challenge you, if you're faced with this right now, make sure that it is a clear mandate in the Scriptures. Amen? In other words, just because you're in an uncomfortable situation right now, where you don't want to do what somebody else is saying, don't try to look through this book and say, I think I'm going to make Psalm 46.4 say what I want it to say. Don't do that. I see Christians do that all the time. I'm like, guess what? That is not what God's talking about here. Again, go back to the situation that I had to deal with. Is there anything that Nick asked me to do that was sinful? No. Uncomfortable. Humiliating. But cleaning a bathroom, even one that he dirtied, is not sinful. Unloading a truck is not sinful. Unfair work conditions, not sinful. I mean, uncomfortable. Sinful for him to do it. But he never asked me to do anything that was was sinful by itself. It's just that it made my life very difficult. And God was in it when He taught a young Christian who's only 19 years old to submit. Do you see how that works? But then there are certain situations that we confront that certainly are sinful. I mean, when Wilbur, Wilberforce in England back in the uh, 1800s you know, fought for the rights of slaves and fought to abolish slavery, he's on good stead. It's sinful to enslave another person. Do you see how this works there? There's a time to go against. And there's a time to submit. But I would submit to you that many of us probably err on the side of not submitting because we're kind of good Americans. No one's going to tell me what to do. You know, and that rugged individualism. Then we are ones who are likely to allow God to shine through our submission. And that's why I called this the submission of God's people. Because folks, I believe this is eminently practical for us today. I mean, even though we live in a rather comfortable democratic republic culture, there's still plenty of opportunities for us to follow God. Amen? I mean, family structures, employment, education. There are some of you that are stuck in really difficult situations right now where you just rather go tell somebody what to do than you would to submit. And maybe what God is saying to you today is that through your submission, He's got a plan. He's got something He wants to do that might change a life for eternity, even yours, through your submission. If it's sinful, then follow God and don't sin. But if it's not, then show them what God's people are made of. And let's see what God does. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we thank You that uh, once again in Your Word, though You say very difficult things to us, in the end they are things that can only bring us life if we but follow. And Lord, if I don't miss my guess, there are some of us here today that might be facing Nick-like circumstances that I've had to face. And um, God, I pray we take the high road. I pray we take the road less traveled when it comes to the choices that we make. And God, as we do, I pray that you might be honored and glorified. We sang that song earlier that, that not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And God, that's what our hearts desire in the end. And so through our obedient and submissive 
and faithfully following lives, I pray, God, that indeed you would shine and do the work that only you can do in the hearts of the people around us. And we'll give you all the glory and the praise. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. God bless you. Have a good day.